Good morning. Well, I'm sure that some of you, maybe many of you, are aware that within 10 miles of this sanctuary exist some of the fastest, most powerful computers in the world. Supercomputers, as they call them. They work to solve the most complex problems, like weather patterns, trying to solve the COVID-19 problem, performing billions of calculations per second. Also within 10 miles of this building are some of the brightest scientists in the world. Again, a fact most likely familiar to most of us. Now, what if we rounded up the brightest of the brightest scientists, the top brainy individual on top of the intellectual heap, and we asked him to do the following? What if we said, okay, Mr. Scientist or Mrs. Scientist, we'd like you to program the most powerful computer of all the supercomputers, to give us an answer to the following question. How does a person gain entrance into heaven after they die? If the scientist did this for us and the question was entered into the supercomputer, after all the available data was analyzed and the numbers were crunched and the computer finally spit out the answer, I strongly doubt that the computer's conclusion would involve a Jewish carpenter living 2,000 years ago, being crucified, and then resurrected. But to be fair to the scientists, the supercomputer, and to all those billions of dollars we've spent on these resources, we really shouldn't expect an answer to this question from a computer. Because the answer to how we gain entrance into heaven cannot be solved by logic and reason alone. The answer belongs to a certain type of information referred to as special revelation. Special revelation. The term special revelation has nothing to do with the last book of the Bible. Special revelation refers to certain types of information that's communicated to men and women from God supernaturally. It's information that you would otherwise not be able to discover. It has to be revealed to you. For instance, by the Bible by Jesus coming to the earth, to prophets as in the Old Testament, or by dreams and vision. Special revelation is different from a related term, general revelation. General revelation describes conclusions that you should be able to, and in fact, God expects us to figure out by observation and reason. An example of 
general revelation is found in the first chapter of Romans, verses 19 and 20, which say, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. General revelation, then, is people observing the creation, the complex construction of a single cell, nature all around us, and the countless stars in the night sky. And through common sense, conclude that a greater power called it all into being and has carefully pieced it together. And not concluding that it all came together from a combination of lots of luck, lots of time, and lots of nothing else. That is general revelation. But a person cannot, simply through observation and reason, somehow conclude that a real guy named Adam from the distant past sinned and that sin resulted in a bit of a mess for every part of creation. But then later, another man, who happened to also be God, fixed the problem for us. This has to be revealed to us by special revelation. So, so far in the discussion, we've been introduced, we've been introduced to a bright scientist, a fast computer, and two types of information. One type you're supposed to figure out on your own, and the other type must be revealed to you. Now I want to introduce a fictitious person into the discussion who, will, who we will refer to as Mr. Nearby. Mr. Nearby is the hypothetical guy living up the street from this church or living on the same block as your home or anyone else who travels in areas of close proximity to us. He could also be known as the average guy or girl. This morning, we're going to focus mainly on one question and the resulting implication from the answer. How likely is it that Mr. Nearby is going to arrive at the correct conclusion to the earlier question that stumped the brightest scientist and the most powerful supercomputers. How likely is the average person who lives nearby to find out that Jesus is the only way to heaven before it's too late for him? Let's pray. Father, open yourself to us this morning, Lord, through your Holy Spirit. We pray that we can feel your presence, Lord. We pray that we would be convicted, even uplifted by your presence. Father, we pray for your will to be done in here today. Amen. But before we explore Mr. Nearby's chances of being saved, I want us to take notice that the use of special revelation goes way back in Bible history. 
It's observed in many Old Testament examples. Here is just a couple. Let's jump back to the book of Exodus about 1,500 years before Christ to a time when the Egyptians were just about to experience the final round of ten unpleasant plagues. The last plague promised by Moses to the Egyptian pharaoh involved the death of the firstborn sons. Turn to Exodus, please. Chapter 11, verse 4, as we catch up with Moses speaking to Pharaoh. Exodus chapter 11, verse 4. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either a man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Israel, Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all your people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Let's keep in mind that God, through Moses, had a pretty solid record of making good on his threats. So far, he was nine for nine and carrying out the plagues that were devastating Egypt, and now the death of the firstborn was foretold. What would you do if you were an Egyptian, an Egyptian parent, and were aware of Moses' latest warning? How would you attempt to save your firstborn child? Could you, by mere reason alone, without an answer communicated by special revelation, figure out how your child could be saved? Here's what I think I would be doing if I was an Egyptian pagan. First, I would understand that the danger to my firstborn child is real because Moses has carried out all of his threats so far. Next, I would want to hide the child in the innermost room of my house. Then I would post a guard at that door and post a guard at the front door. And finally, if I was an Egyptian pagan, I would get out all the family idols and I would start burning incense to those pagan idols. That would seem like a reasonable approach if I was an Egyptian. But what's the likelihood that we would come up with this means of protection? First, we need to go out and get a one-year-old lamb without blemish. Next, we need to sacrifice that lamb and then apply its blood to the doorframe at the entrance of our house. This way, the Jews' God will see the blood on the doorframe and will pass over us without killing the firstborn. 
I think we all have to admit there is no chance whatsoever that we would come up with this method of saving the firstborn without it being revealed to us. You couldn't possibly reason your way to a lamb, the blood, and the doorway. Now let's move forward about 40 years to the book of Joshua chapter 2. One more, this is one more example. We looked at this section of the Bible several, several weeks ago when we were marveling at the faith of Rahab the prostitute, a resident of the Canaanite city of Jericho. Her home was located within the wall surrounding the city. The million or so Jews having had left Egypt and spend 40, spending 40 years in the desert are days away from conquering the city. And the residents of Jericho are not only aware of the threat, the Bible also tells us that their hearts were melting with fear because of it. Because they had reasoned that the God of the Jews was the real deal. After hearing about the episode of God parting the Red Sea and rescuing the Jews from the Egyptians, they knew the threat was real. So what could they do? What would you do if you were a resident of Jericho? I think the only reasonable answer is that you would have to fight for your life and hope you got lucky and survived the attack. But what is the likelihood that you would come up with this method of being saved? Let's hang a scarlet rope outside a window on the wall protecting the city. The same wall that is going to be the object of complete destruction when the Jews circle the city seven times, blow their trumpets, and give out a loud shout. It defies all logic. The rope on the wall strategy seems like the worst possible plan for saving someone. Sometimes I think that if I had somehow been in that room when the Jewish spies were, reveal, were relaying the scarlet rope plan to Rahab, and if I had already read a couple chapters ahead in Joshua, I would have been silently trying to get their attention. I would have been waving my hand saying, no, 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 that's not a good plan. That's a bad plan. The wall is coming down. I'm sure you've all heard this riddle before. I've, I've heard it since the, my early days of being a Christian. It goes like this. Where was the safest place to be and where was the most dangerous place to be located when the Jews conquered Jericho? It's the same place, the wall. So it was a plan that could not have been arrived to without special revelation. It was outside of all logic and reason. So we've established that saving people by means of communicating by special revelation has a historical basis in the Bible. Now I want to examine some of the specific characteristics of the plan of salvation through Christ and how those characteristics make it even more unlikely that Mr. Nearby will on his own figure out how to be saved. First, the plan is narrow and few find it. 
Jesus tells us there are two paths under consideration by man. One path is easy and the other is hard. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. The wide path would likely include religions where followers gain admission to heaven based on performing good works, or it might involve people who have no religious affiliation, but they figure they're pretty decent folks. And if there is a God, and someday he chooses all the decent folks to enter eternity with him in heaven and send others to hell, well, then certainly the decent folks will be making it to heaven. Or finally, believing that a loving God wouldn't dare send anyone to something sounding so awful as hell, therefore you've got nothing to worry about because hell doesn't exist. All these would be in a wide path. And think about the majority of people that you know out there represented by Mr. Nearby, and wouldn't you agree that Jesus is correct that most people are choosing the wide and easy, easy path leading to destruction. But as it turns out, the path to enter heaven isn't just narrow. It's extremely narrow. Considering the, consider the following verses shown to us through special revelation through the Bible. One's from Jesus, one's from Peter, and one is from Paul. First one is in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. How many people will be entering heaven by means other than through Jesus? Exactly none. And then Peter in Acts 4.12, where he says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Once again, it's pretty clear there is no other way. Paul, 1 Timothy 2.5, he writes, For there is one God, and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And finally, I want to consider Jesus praying in the garden at Gethsemane, prior to be taken prisoner and subsequently crucified. Jesus prays to the Father with these words, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. He prayed this prayer three times. Certainly, if a different path to salvation was available, Jesus' prayer would have been answered and he would have been spared going to the cross. So because the true path to salvation is so narrow, 
our expectations for Mr. Nearby to find his way to saving faith seem quite low without someone telling him. Okay, if you're flying, if you plan on flying on a plane in the near future, you may want to tune out the next few minutes of this sermon. But on the other hand, the next few minutes could save your life as I draw an analogy with special revelation. See, because I have a bit of a fascination with commercial airline disasters. I'm very interested in things like the sequence of events leading to airline accidents, pilot thought processes during the events, and different types of equipment failure. One of the more unfortunate causes of passenger deaths is a cabin fire while the plane is on the runway, either before takeoff or after landing. Before a commercial jet is certified to carry passengers, it has to meet this emergency evacuation criteria. You have to be able to evacuate all passengers from a fully loaded flight within 90 seconds of identifying the problem. And this includes the hypothetical failure of one half of the emergency exits. I've already been speaking about airplanes for 45 seconds. One half of the evacuation time is already gone. You would have had to run out by now, and it goes pretty quick, doesn't it? But getting yourself from your seat through the emergency exit and finally with your feet safely on the runway can be additionally complicated by smoke, toxic fumes, and perhaps flames filling the limited airspace. But even if it's in the middle of the day, with the sun shining brightly outside and all the cabin lights on, it can become immediately impossible to see any distance in front of you due to thick black smoke. Now here's the unfortunate part. There have been passenger fatalities after the fire is put out the first responders discover people who died just a few feet from the emergency exit. They didn't realize they were so close to escaping the fire. You see, when the air is black or your eyes are closed due to pain from toxic fumes, you don't know if you're two feet from the emergency exit or 20 feet from the emergency exit. And you only have seconds to respond correctly. The trick to survive in an accident of this nature is to count how many rows of seats you are from the emergency exit before the incident happens. Then, under conditions of zero visibility, you can count the rows of seats by touch as you make your way toward the emergency exit. But the important point is you have to figure this out before the fire starts. The parallel here is that the information a person needs to save themselves from perishing in a plane during a fire event is a type of special revelation. Picture yourself in one of these airline fires, quickly counting the rows of seats as you make your way toward the emergency exit. 
Let's say as you get close to the exit, you happen to come across a woman or child standing in the aisle screaming and crying, but not attempting to leave. I suppose you could just say to yourself, well, they've got another 30 seconds to figure this out. I'm sure it'll work out somehow. Or you could offer special revelation and say, I know the way out. Come with me. The information has to be provided. It cannot be figured out. Our Mr. Nearby is like a passenger on an airline. He's pretty sure everything's going to work out just fine. Nothing will go wrong. There's, there's no need for him to pay attention to the flight attendant as she gives instructions for emergency exiting. And likewise, there is no reason for Mr. Nearby to pay any attention to the Bible and what it says about our sin problem. So who's going to tell Mr. Nearby? Who is going to tell him about his sin problem and the way to salvation? The book of Revelation, chapter 20, starting with verse 12, gives us a glimpse of the final judgment of all men. Please turn to Revelation, chapter 20, verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. While I was putting this sermon together, I had an odd thought about what else might be included in those judgment books. Just imagine if by each name of a lost soul there was a footnote reference and the footnote included the name of the church located nearest to the condemned individual's home and the distance between the church and their home. For instance, several of the neighboring houses around this church would have a footnote including Faith Bible Fellowship Church, 300 feet. I can't help but think of the airline passengers dying only a few feet away from the emergency exit. Now, I know this is all hypothetical and it's not actually in the Bible, these footnotes, but even so, I would rather Faith Bible Fellowship Church not be mentioned in any footnotes like that. And if it was, I would hope that the nearest lost soul's home would be measured 
in miles from our church, not in feet. All right, you say this is all well and good. We've just had another Sunday sermon convincing us that local evangelism has some Christian merit. I've sat through these messages before. No doubt I'll have to set through them again someday. But let's face it, life goes on without much ever really changing. This morning I want to suggest you do just one thing. One thing. And if you will, turn to Romans chapter 10, verse 13. Romans chapter 10, verse 13. And I'm going to be reading verses 13 through 15. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We like that verse. That's one of our insurance verses, right? That one's for us. But what about this one? How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. I would suggest that we commit these verses to memory. Pray about these verses. Just start here. Just start here and see what the Holy Spirit's next step might be to get the word to Mr. Nearby. Because remember, he's not going to come up with it on his own. Let's pray. Father, we are indeed thankful that you ensured the gospel message was sent to us and you opened our hearts and our eyes to your truth. Lord, would you multiply this work you've done in us and let it spread to those nearby. Father, please soften the hearts of those needing to receive your word and stir the hearts of your children to pass on what we have received. Amen.